Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the first step. We have a really exciting and innovative show for you today. I'm here with Magdalena Cislak, and she is going to be taking the mic today in post role and interviewing me. So if you're having a listen and you wish you would have got your questions in, well, just send them to me and maybe we'll do this again if, if there's enough interest. So welcome to the show, Magda. How are you today? Thanks. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited for this. It's so fun. And um, it was your idea. And I just love your creativity and what you bring to the mix here on planet Earth. So I'm going to hand the host role over to you. Thank you. So we've been friends not too long ago, and I'm getting to know you. And I thought that it would be fun if everybody would be getting to know you as well. So how about we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. So how about we start with uh, your early days and then we'll answer some questions. Yeah, well, I grew up in a small suburb outside of Edmonton, Alberta. And I really felt from a very early age that I didn't really fit in. Like I always kind of felt like a bit of a misfit or like I couldn't really understand what people were on about when they were talking. And actually just this morning I was on another call and somebody asked me like, what was the start of my spiritual journey? And I was just recalling like even in childhood reading books where there'd be, you know, just these topics and themes in elementary school books of like, time travel or alternate universes or realities. And then in in my teenage years, having this boyfriend who um, went to sweat lodges and had a medicine man, and I was just so intrigued. And he was reading Carlos Castaneda. And, and yeah, for whatever, even in my very kind of average white, suburban upbringing I was always kind of weird and had an inkling or an inclination towards things that I would say are not very mainstream or you know present in our modern culture yeah I find that those um, children's books can be so fascinating and in a way they plant the seeds yeah and then you're an adult and you're like I totally read that in a book when I was like six yeah but there wasn't a lot of room, like in, in the world that I was growing up in, there wasn't a lot of room for those conversations, you know, like I didn't really find a lot of people wanted to engage with me in that, in those realms or those themes or those topics. Like I really did feel like I was almost like I kind of had to hide that curiosity or that interest because, I, you know, the look that I would get on people's faces when I would approach those subjects I think was mostly like what like huh you know <laughs> what are you talking about mm -hmm. so what was family like for you uh, did you grow up with like um, grandparents around you aunts and uncles cousins no I mean and this is I think in general in, in my generation right I was born in 1976 that we were growing up in the 80s with parents mostly that were working both parents working and parents that had 
probably relocated to like a new city, a new province. So my grandparents and the majority of my relatives, like aunts and uncles were in Manitoba. And we would see them, you know, on occasion for like a summer vacation or, you know, Christmas holiday or something like that. But it was really like short stints and, you know, kind of every time you had to reacquaint and um, there wasn't like a super depth of connection, I would say, with any of my extended relatives. Everything was all cordial and sweet and everybody was nice and we were all happy to see each other. But yeah, I wouldn't say there was a lot of connections, even with cousins that I loved, but it would be, you know, to, we'd be together for three days once a year. You By the third day, you felt like you were kind of getting to know each other again, but there was no consistency of relationship or connection. Um, and within our little nuclear family, I think that's what it's called, right? This whole way that most of us grew up was just like mom and dad and brother and sister. Um, I, I have an older brother, he's three years older than me. And it was my parents. Um, and then I think they created a really sweet environment to grow up in. But I would say at that time, they and everybody around us, it was about work, you know, it was kind of like Monday to Friday, nine to five, you were either in school or at a job. And then when you got home, you did homework or the work that you didn't get finished in your workday. And, and that was a lot of the rhythm of my life. However, I will give my parents a lot of credit because both of them were in education. And so we did have some of these extended holidays that other people might not have had. And on those extended vacation periods, like summer or spring break, we would do things outside. So I think somehow, even in this time that where we grew up in nuclear families working nine to five and just so much um, focus on work, we did have these extended trips out in nature where we had a camper and we would go camping and we had another um, close family, friends of ours that we would go with. And there was in those moments some really rich, like those deep connections, both with that family and um, which were our next door neighbors and in nature. Like I remember my dad and my godfather from that family fishing and us kids would just be there, you know, getting in trouble, like climbing trees and throwing rocks and and I think that was also a, a big part of how I got nourished as a kid, those long extended vacation moments outside. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you tell us about your heritage? Well, yes and no. Um, I'll do my best, but that is an area that I feel too where, and I would say I'm not alone in this, where a lot of my ancestry or heritage just got left behind when my great grandparents immigrated to Canada. I think at that point, everything before then just got left in Ukraine, Poland, and Hungary. And then at that point, we, my, my ancestors were, had become these, settlers in the new land starting completely again and their identity was as I see it like born at that point I don't think a lot got carried down from 
the generations before them. I mean, obviously it did get carried down, but not through like oral transmission or tradition, uh, traditions. I think, you know, probably epigenetically, I'm still receiving those downloads from whatever all of those previous generations have been through, but we were never taught or told, or we never had lived experiences of, you know, four generations back. We were just as children, you know, at Christmas, we might have like the traditional Ukrainian Christmas dishes, but that was it. Like that was the extent of what I knew from my heritage. So I would eat pierogies once a year or borscht once a year, but um, I didn't like, you know, we never painted uh, Ukrainian Easter eggs, not until recently when I met a girl here in Qualicum Beach who knew how to do it. Um, but yeah, I didn't, and especially on my mom's side, the Polish and Hungarian ancestry, especially on my mom's side of the family, it was like completely severed. All I knew from that side was that that's where her ancestors came from. But that's literally all I knew about anything Polish or Hungarian. And then it wasn't until recently when I started to make contact with some First Nations people here, and the question would be so much more relevant, like, where are you from? And when I couldn't answer that, that's where I really started to realize just how disconnected I was from my ancestry. I think that was those first moments where I was like, wow, yeah, I can't tell you really where I'm from. I don't have any experience with this. And then I would say that I've started to realize just recently that my ancestors are actually here with me all at all times. And I'm, I'm starting to see this is a, you know, I'd say I'm at the beginning of the journey of, of really making peace and connection with my ancestors that I, I have access to them in a way that doesn't require like a book where you open and you trace the family tree and you know, their specific names or exactly what they ate, but that there is, there's still a potential for us to communicate and, and get guidance or receive, you know, what they're here to provide for us, even without knowing who they are, exactly what their names were. So by the looks of it, you're Canadian, but really you're a hundred percent Eastern European like me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so who made those pierogies and borscht you had growing up? That would have been my grandma, Mary Sajak, and she was an amazing cook. So she did still hold some of those traditions. And interestingly, though, she had three boys, my father and two other sons, my my uncles. And so I think in part, too, because she didn't have a girl that, you know, I, and myself and my mom and you know the girl cousins that I had like we would spend time in the kitchen with her but I don't think she had a direct you know female descendant to really teach what she was doing so we would help and you know I remember her she had a whole freezer of like yummy treats she'd probably make all year but and then we just eat all eat through all of them at Christmas time but you know 
the the granddaughter is like our role was to go and get them out of the freezer but we never really spent time with her making them you know we weren't involved in how she put these things together like we'd set the table but she was the one doing the slaving away in the kitchen i make traditional polish dishes for christmas so i make borscht and i make pierogies and it's a labor of love because each one is handmade and it's so important to me, you know, when you have that piece of dough that you're going to fill to make a pierogi, when I have it in my hand, mm-hmm. it, it connects me to my lineage. Yeah. And it com- connects me to the women who have come before me. Because growing up, you're running around in the kitchen and grandma is making pierogies and it's it's in our DNA. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I, I'm going to commit to this year. It's interesting because I think as we get older, we realize the importance of these things, you know, knowing our our heritage and, and what the people before us have gone through. And my mom and dad will still make pierogies and borscht. And so they know, like they were wise enough to learn or learned somewhere along the line. And so I'm going to commit, I'm making a commitment to you and all my listeners that I'm going to help make pierogies this year and learn. And I'm going to hold them in my hand and connect with what you're saying. You know, when I come over, when I come over to your house and Danny is making his delicious traditional Mexican dishes and you guys offer this to me, it, uh, it means so much to me yeah. because those traditional foods are so important. And they help us remember where we came from. Yeah. Yeah, that's critical. I mean, even when you're saying that, I just think, you know, these are the things that if we're, if we're not conscious, if we don't pay respect, we can lose, right? We'll all be eating this packaged foods and forget about like what it means to nourish ourselves. And part of that nourishment, I think, is that connection to our, the people who have gone before us. I mean, that's why I think, you and I both, I think, have a deep respect for First Nations culture because they're so in touch with this wisdom, right? These seven generations before and seven generations after. And I think we lost that for a while, you know, just how important that was. So maybe it's our job to to start to remember some of this wisdom and bring it back to life, you know, by actually doing it, living it. So where is it that you feel home? Where do you feel where you belong? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Yeah, I would say um, I feel most at home in my body. So when I close my eyes and I go inside and I drop down into feeling my feet or anywhere on that journey up through legs or spine or arms and into head or back down, that that's actually when I feel most at home and at peace and settled and like I belong. And then if you're asking me like in the world on our planet, it's tough. I mean, I never growing up in Edmonton, I definitely felt like I wanted to get out of there from a very early age. I remember getting a job at 14 and thinking like I am saving to get out of here. And I did. And then I traveled to a lot of different places. And I will mention that when I got to places that we would probably call, I don't know what the proper term is now, third world or developing nations, I was like, ah, this is nice. Like I loved the speed, the pace, the kind of freedom, 
um, maybe people would describe it as chaos, but I kind of saw it as like, you know, the intermingling of things. I really felt like that also felt like where I wanted to be and that there was something about those warmer places that I really adored. However, you know, I've been now on Vancouver Island for 12 years and this is starting to feel like home in a new way that I haven't experienced before. Um, but yeah, it's a tough question. I can't say that on the planet, I necessarily feel like there's one place that feels like home. And if you were like, Hey, I have a, a ticket and a backpack. You want to go somewhere or like a full tank of gas and a car? Like, I'd be like, yeah, let's go. Like, <laughs> I do love movement and travel and I do feel like coming home is available to me anytime I close my eyes. You are a nurturer. Who nurtured you as a kid? Hmm. Well, I would say my mom really, she is also like an incredible nurturer. So she definitely did like a hundred percent. Was there anybody else? I mean, my godmother, that family that I was telling you about, we lived next door to them my whole life. We moved once and they moved. Like we we always shared next door neighborhood with them. And I would consider her as being a nurturing and actually my godfather as a very nurturing uh, aspect to my life. That's beautiful. They shaped up who you became. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. Who has been your biggest inspiration? Oh my gosh, I know. We posted some we posted some of these or the opportunity on Facebook for people to ask questions. Some of these questions are coming from them, right? So that one when it popped up, I was like, "Oh gosh, and I meant to really kind of nail that down before you asked me and I didn't think about it." So this is completely spontaneous download. I would say my mom is definitely one of my biggest inspirations because she didn't have an easy life and the kind of life that she had, it typically would have set her up to repeat those patterns, which she didn't. So I think she showed me that it's possible to break patterns um, and create the life that we want. She's been definitely, and she was always ahead of her time, like in the sense of being a strong woman and making decisions for herself and standing up for herself and, She's powerful in her own unique way. So she's definitely been one of my biggest inspirations. Um, And my teacher, Diane Long, also is deeply inspiring to me because she just has so much integrity and commitment to this practice and the teachings. Um, And she's living in a time where I see most of people in her position becoming corrupt to that power or wisdom. And she's just somehow stayed very true to, yeah, keeping it alive and not packaging it and marking it and corrupting it. So she's very inspiring. And also she's very inspiring just in the way that she has a connection to her body and inner world. Um, I really appreciate that about her. Um, And I mean, a lot of people who are dead have inspired me, you know, like Martin Luther King and um, Krishnamurti. And, you know, there's people who have done amazing, incredible things by the way of their 
you know, they're kind of radical thinking, like radical thinkers, people who take risks out of what we're expected to do always inspire me. I'm sure I could think of others, but that's what comes to mind. Uh, while we are talking about Diane, you are hosting a yoga retreat in Mexico, and it is going to be a special one. Do you have any spots left? Yeah, I think there's potentially a few spots if somebody's listening and thinking like, yeah, I really would love to go and get to know her and her teacher. I'm hosting the retreat and um, that's kind of the main bulk of that offering. It's January 20th to the 27th in Sayulita, Mexico, and anybody can reach out if they want to know more. And Diane, my teacher, is just going to happen to be there and, and has agreed to offer just a few slots for people if they want to um, tap into her teaching. So it is quite a unique and Um, it is an amazing opportunity to meet her and, and if you want to work with me. So reach out if you're listening and you want more information. What were you at, like as a kid, preteen? Was there any indicate, indication in those early years that may have pointed to what you are doing in, in your life today? Yeah, I mean, I think I touched on that a little bit with... Um, you know, that inclination towards weird things as a kid or things that were not so mainstream. But apart from that, what I've already said, yeah, you know, I think I always, part of my mission or the gifts that I always felt like I was tuning into is I could see people's pain. Like I was always interested in people who were struggling in some which way, like if somebody was having family troubles or, you know, trouble at school, like I was always curious about what was going on there and I wanted to know more. And I always really wanted to listen to people when they were in conflict or struggle. And I think I always had a certain capacity to just be with people in it. It didn't freak me out. It didn't make me uncomfortable. I wanted to, I felt like I could always make room for pretty much anything that anybody was going through. Um, and I think as far as my personality or my soul, or I don't know if, you know, what we believe as far as what we come here with nature, nurture, but I feel like, I was always somebody who was there to, I don't know if I would say like rock the boat or question or push against authority, but I, it, I found it really difficult to just accept what people said. Like I did have respect for people that were older than me, but if they were exhibiting, you know, abusive behavior or power driven, hungry behavior. I also wasn't scared to stand up and question it. You know, there was that piece of me that always just naturally existed. And if you asked my parents, they would definitely confirm that I consistently was questioning <laughs> everything. I don't know if that somehow indicates to what I'm doing. But I think when we're on this path of, you know, healing, and if my work is around, you know, bringing us back into balance or health or harmony, I think part of that path does require 
questioning it requires us to face sometimes like the uncomfortable truth of what's happening, which is often about, yeah, like an imbalance of power or denial or, or lies that we tell ourselves. So yeah, I think that's how those, those things are kind of related. How did you meet your teacher, Diane? How long a journey did you take to transform your practice after starting to work with her? Mm, yeah. So I, how I met Diane is very serendipitous, probably destiny. I mean, I don't know how these things happen. I don't know, but it was actually my mom was here living on, on Vancouver Island and she was, I can never remember if it was a bookstore or the pool, but she was, I think it was a bookstore and she just overheard a lady in the bookstore saying Mexico. I don't know if she said Sayulita or something. And then my mom was like, Oh, my daughter lives in Mexico. And then the lady that she just happened to start a conversation with said to my mom, Oh, I think I know your daughter because we'd met in, in Mexico like 10 years prior. And she said, she knew I did yoga. And she said that this woman, Diane was coming to Vancouver Island in the summer. And if I would be visiting and if so, that I should make a point of coming and meeting her. And my mom somehow held on to that information. And when I got to the island that summer, she said, hey, I ran into this woman at the bookstore and she told me that you should contact her because she's got this great teacher. Well, it turned out that I had missed that moment, that it had already happened. But when I was speaking with this lady, she said, well, you should invite her down to Mexico. She'd probably come. And for whatever reason, I just kept following this trail. Like it's so random. I have no idea precisely why I made the point of like, okay, I'll invite this random stranger to my studio at a yoga studio at the time. So I emailed Diane Long and I said, this lady told me I should ask you to come to my studio and teach. <laughs> Would you like to? And she said, sure. So she came and that's how I met her. And as far as the second part of that question, how long did it take to transform my practice after starting to work with her? That's a good question. I mean, I had already been doing yoga for at least 10 years and was teaching. Well, I had kind of been doing yoga my whole life because my mom did yoga. So I had tastes of it very early on, but seriously practicing and teaching for 10 years. And when I met Diane, immediately it became impossible to practice the way that I was practicing. Like I could no longer continue doing what I was doing. But there was a phase, and I don't know how long that lasted. There was a phase where I was like, uh, but uh, what the now, how do I like, <laughs> it was very there was a gap because I knew so much. And she, when I met her, she kind of made it a paradigm shift. Yeah. Like I could no longer turn to repeat like old knowledge. She had somehow deeply made me realize that 
I was going to have to come to my practice and what I was teaching again and again. And I just wasn't quite sure how to trust that, you know, how to do that. Cause I was so used to repeating what I knew and teaching kind of like a robot, I think something that somebody else had taught me. And I had lost the way of, you know, letting my inner world guide me through so much training. So how long did that take? I remember, you know, she would have been there probably on the weekend. And I remember going back up into my class probably on Monday morning to teach and just being like, I'm not sure what to do. I was just really honest. Like, I'm not sure what I'm going to teach now. And I think it was a process probably of, you know, one to two to three, maybe even five years before I really felt like I could embody the work that she was teaching me and, and express it in a way that my students could, um, absorb it or integrate it, but it definitely immediately changed the way I practiced. I just, I felt like I was starting again. And then how long that took to integrate, I don't know, I I still feel like I'm integrating the work all the time. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. I guess so, they say that, right? Yeah. You, You demonstrate kinship with nature. You meditate by the river. You value that place. How did you get to that place, the realization that it has a tremendous importance to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read this question on our on our Facebook discussion, and I thought, too, like, wow, that's a really good, deep question. And when I first read it and I was pondering it, I do think it comes back around to my parents on those trips instilling in me or giving me those experiences out in nature. Like I think inherently I had enough connection in my neural pathways in childhood where I climbed trees and I frolicked in rivers or lakes or on mountains that I already knew in my biology, like how fun and free and yummy that was. I think that had something to do with it. And then I think there was a period again where, you know, again, we started working and, you know, getting a degree and there was a seriousness to life where I probably had less experiences climbing trees and frolicking in rivers and all that stuff. But then I would say, if I'm really honest, and as I was thinking about the answer to this question, the other thing that brought me back to nature was experimenting with psychedelics where you would inherently kind of have to go outside and spend, you know, large amounts of time kind of without your normal frame of mind, I guess, and seeing through those experiences, just feeling through those experiences, a deep communion with nature. I think that was definitely a part of what rebirthed my feeling of how important it is to be out in nature. I think that had something to do with it. And then I think more recently, you know, fast forward, you know, okay, then a life in Mexico and then coming to Canada 12 years ago with two young kids And if any mothers are listening, they would relate, I'm sure. And just, you know, not having a lot of time for self. I think that when I started to just make a little bit more time for myself to go out for walks, 
I realized that when I did this, when I went out for a walk in the forest or I went out and sat by the river or down by the sea, that just by doing that, just looking for some kind of moment of calm or peace or time for myself, that I think that's inherent that when we actually go to nature, that it just nourishes us. So every time I did that, I felt like my battery got recharged. I, I got lessons and insights from watching the sky or watching ants or watching flowers or seeing the different seasons on my walks. I think nature is giving us that, you know, as long as we, as we take ourselves out into nature, I think nature herself gives us those realizations or provides us with that value. So if you're listening to this, I would encourage anybody, if you're not spending time in nature, even if you don't know how to make that connection or you don't know how that would um, connect, I think you just go out there and you, you're given that, that that's the gift that nature gives us. It's available to everybody. I don't think we have to work for it or make it happen. I just think it's inherent. We are nature. And it's crazy that we're talking about this, right? That some people maybe don't go and spend time out in nature, that we've created these concrete jungle city structure towns whatever that where we can exist and we literally don't commune with nature we get in our we go from our house to our car down our street to the stop sign to the grocery store under lights and get our food and go back and get back into our kitchen we don't it's not inherently built into our culture right so I think yeah one it was my parents giving me the experience out in nature Two, it was an experience with psychedelics and three it was like my own trying to survive as a mother and just getting out of my house and then remembering what nature gives to us that allowed me to realize how tremendously important that connection to nature truly is uh, nature is the biggest healer if you can commit to a practice of like even like half an hour by yourself without your phone, it will change you, it will regulate your nervous system. And we don't need studies for that. Totally, exactly. You feel it. You feel it. Exactly, Magda. It's like if anybody's listening and is like, I don't know what you're talking about, literally just go outside if it's not like a forest or a river, just go out in a park. Don't bring your phone. Look up at the sky or sit in your yard take your shoes off put your feet on the ground or you have even you know less room like on your patio on your balcony like feel the fresh air on your face feel the sun on your face stick your hands in the bowl of dirt like it doesn't have to be complicated right and I think just by doing it you you feel you you can't deny the boost or the recharge or that connection that you you physically emotionally mentally spiritually feel from doing it i know you like that spot by the river and we feel the pool to some places on earth for a reason i was telling you i have to explore the mountains in mexico yeah. there's something there i agree yeah, we get pulled, right? I mean, we just need to listen. Mm -hmm. Like the trees have messages for us. For sure. 
Well, I was just saying to somebody, I'm going to share this because I think these are things that we don't hear often enough. Um, I, by making time to go sit by the river one day, I ran into this beautiful indigenous elder man and he was describing to me how he sees the trees are his ancestors. And because of the way he was speaking and maybe just the divinity of this moment, I was listening to him and really seeing through his eyes or feeling through his essence, like literally the trees are his ancestors and literally they are. I mean, the trees are growing out of earth, which is fed by the decomposing of what has died already. Like we're literally recycling life in these cycles, right? And these trees are, are just old ancestors and and then he was even blowing my mind more because he was talking about how the rocks, mountains, are the older version of our ancestors. Like it's everything on the planet is us. They're all our relations, right? And when we start to, I think, spend time in nature and appreciate nature, connect with nature again, we... we we remember actually just how interconnected everything is with itself. And I think that it would be in large part a fast track to solving our, in quotation, climate crisis, or better said, our, our fragmented relationship with nature. Because I think once we start to commune in nature and have a deep respect for the trees or the rocks or the water because they're our ancestors, there would be no question what we do there would be no no process we would just stop abusing overtaking um all this excess and greed would drop away because we would realize those are that's our family you know that's that's where we come from we're so spoiled here on vancouver island we have some of the oldest trees on the planet and they're so big that if you find yourself in their presence it changes you. It's so moving. And I cannot believe that people are in prison right now for standing up for life. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, I just getting shivers with the conversation. If anybody has been listening to my podcast, they know, like I went on a tangent around that topic for a while when I, I went down to the Fairy Creek region on Vancouver Island, which is one of the last untouched old growth stretches of forest on Vancouver Island. And exactly what you described, it just changed me. I was like, holy shit. How are we even considering touching this? Like it doesn't exist. I mean, and, and what blew my mind about that experience actually was that we like here where I live, if I don't know if we're going to use the video side of this, but I'm going to just turn my computer on. I mean, there's forest everywhere around me, but it's third generation forest, right? And it's mind blowing in and of itself. Like every, you know, all these beautiful places that I go for my recharge in nature, there's, there's trees. It's beautiful, but I had never been to an untouched old growth forest. And it was like out of this freaking world. It was like, if you've seen the movie Avatar, 
that's like what it was like another world, like water and life and the birds and the, the foliage on so many different levels and planes and like the reach of the trees to the sky. It was like, again, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And it, it's such, it's like a minuscule amount of land that looks like that on our planet and we're cutting it down like even today so all like you're speaking of all these hundreds of people who have been fighting for the rights of these giant grandfather trees ancient trees yeah some of them are in jail some of them have criminal charges because they're they're trying to stand up and protect them but anyways that's like a whole other podcast but yes I know both you and me feel so strongly about that since we're on the topic, what does ungovernable mean to you? What <laughs> does taking our power back mean? What power don't you have? And when did you lose it? Oh, my God. I know. God, God bless you, Trish, for this question. You know, when we posted, um, yeah, who wants to ask me a question on my podcast? And we, you know, to stop the scroll, we chose this picture of me wearing a sweatshirt that my brother had bought me that has an anarchy symbol and it says be ungovernable just for some context and um I love the shirt I love the image I love the concept of be ungovernable because in large part I think we're at this stage, this phase of our evolution where it's not to make a judgment or blame or point fingers at government or politicians or how we got here. I think my stance has more to do with we're here. We're here on planet Earth in 2023. I'm here. And what I'm seeing through my own experience with my own eyes and ears in my life is that However we got here, the power structures, our governance system, the institutions, the policies, the procedures, the bureaucracy that we live under today is no longer serving us. So whether it has or not in the past, I don't even like that's who cares. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I wouldn't want to waste time arguing about that. But where we are today, I don't think anybody can argue that it's not working. Like our systems are no longer working. Our healthcare system is in collapse. Our education system is in collapse. There's not a single person. I don't think that truly believes that government's going to solve our problems, whether you're voting in the States, democratic Republican here in Canada and DP liberal conservative, like name your party, name your country, name your version of democracy political system. I think there isn't a place in the world where the people, the general population feels like they're getting their money's worth for the taxes that they're paying and that the way that taxes are being utilized and the way that systems are running, that it's efficient and it's effective and it's actually serving us. So I think that stance of like being governable is a call from me to all of us to say like, what, what do we want to do now? Like, what is the way forward? What, where we are today with, yes, 8 billion people on the planet, what's another way that we could collaborate? And can we start to, when I say take our power back, realize 
that we don't have to wait for anybody else. We don't have to ask permission to start to use our own creative genius and tap into our own insight, wisdom, knowing about how and where we want to make the change. We don't have to ask our MLA to start to create change. We don't have to ask our doctor if we can start to take better care of our health. We don't have to ask our teacher or our principal if we want to learn about a certain subject. We can just go and make change in our community. We can go and make change in our relationships and our relationship with our own bodies, our own health, how we learn what we're learning about. So I think when I say or promote or wear that shirt, be ungovernable. It's not to create division or blame about like, fuck the police or fuck the politicians or, you know, it's not like anti something. It's more maybe like a little bit, I like the controversy of it because it will kind of rile people up when you put like an anarchy symbol because then you'll get people who will be like, well, what do you what do you want? How is that going to work? You know, it's like, great, that's a start, right? That's a start. Start asking yourself. And I think that's what it means to take your power back. It's like, start to realize you have some of the answers and that you're not uh, useless. You're here for a reason and start to to recognize inside yourself, what is your purpose? What what are you good at? How can you contribute your gifts, your talents, and maybe rely less on anybody else, whether that's your government, your systems, your partner, your parents, or whatever. How can you be more sovereign in your life where you're meeting your own needs? And I think this is a really circular conversation because I think when we start to ask those questions, we realize we don't need as much as we've been sold or conditioned to think we need. So when we take responsibility for our own lives and we're going to try to provide for the most part what we need, we'll take less. This will be good for our planet. Like it's such a circular conversation. We won't be giving people who have greed in mind the power to take from us you know we won't need what they have so I I think that's the the point of that conversation about be ungovernable and as far as what power don't you have and when did you lose it I think that part of the question I think I have found my power again I think part of when I lost my power for a short period was when I I felt like I should do what everybody else was doing you know, that phase in my maybe, you know, high school years where I was, I had all these dreams and I had all these like exciting ideas. And then I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, everybody's saying I should go to university and get a degree and get a job with a pension that, you know, is um, secure and will leave me in retirement sitting pretty. I think that's when I gave away my power, when I kind of bought into that story that, planning for a future according to how I could have a whole bunch of money at the end, that that was in large part when I started to give away my power. And then it was when Danny drove us off a cliff shortly after I got my degree that I realized life was too short to not follow my heart. And that's when I think I started to take my power back. And I was like, okay, well, whatever, I'm just going to start to follow my heart. And that's when I found yoga and, you know, started to travel uh, again outside of, what would have been a normal path and 
And then I realized, yeah, I have a lot of answers inside me and like larger potential to live the life of my dream. Is that ungovernable sovereign? Yeah, I mean, bless, you know, I think the, the woman who asked this question, she was one of the um, indigenous, beautiful humans that I got to meet through that path of fairy Greek. I love how this conversation is so circular, spirally. And it, in large part, I recorded a podcast with her and it was on that podcast that she was like, where are you from? And I was like, I don't know. And she was like, you need to know where you're from. <laughs> okay I'll figure it out so blessed because that really did start my journey in that direction and I think it was her who asked this question is ungovernable sovereign and yeah I mean this is that conversation right like I don't have all the answers I'm not saying that I know exactly where we need to go I'm just flagging that where we are the direction that we seem to be heading isn't looking super pretty, right? It's not serving a lot of us. A lot of people are being caught in really extreme poverty, war, conflict, our homelessness situation, our opioid crisis, the wars in the world, you know, like our dirty water, our contaminated soil. It doesn't seem to me that we're like, <laughs> we're doing what we're meant to do. So to, to, call out like, hey, guys, like be ungovernable is just a way it's just a way to kind of shake us out of, of going along with, you know, like once an object is in motion stays in motion, it's a way to kind of be like, you know, like, lift the needle off that record. And, and what kind of music do we want to play? Like, let's change the record, let's decide which direction we want to take. And sovereignty or being ungovernable, I think just implies that we actually have more power than we think, you know, like in school and in the past, I don't know if it's 100 years, 500 years, 1000 years, I don't know how to measure time in that way or patterns. But for some time, for a large amount of time, we've been conditioned or cultured to think that our duty, our job was to sit down and be quiet. I mean, that's what I remember from school. That's why I kept getting in trouble at school for it was like standing up, raising my hand, asking the hard questions, you know, teachers hated that parents hate that, right? Politicians hate that they don't want to protest, they don't want citizens or, you know, as parents, we don't want our children questioning us. But I think that's, that's what we need. We need people to stand up and start to use their voices and use their own intelligence to their own insight, their own knowing, their own intuition to, to start to speak their truth rather than just feeling afraid or doubting or waiting for somebody else to, to be the authority. So I think that that sovereign piece or ungovernable piece, yeah, it's part of that same conversation for me where I just hope to be able to inspire people to realize that's where we're at like I don't think it's a it's a debate I think that's where we're at and either you want to start to participate and and be a part of a shifting directions or you're gonna be waiting forever for somebody else to do that and it might be too late people tend to say oh if we had no rules it would be chaos out there but after everything that our grandparents went through with the wars and all those political campaigns, like, look at where we're at. 
we do have reasons and it's not working out exactly exactly so i love that i love what you're saying because i think that's and trish thank you for the question because um i think this is the thing it's like we're not us as humans back to how we're all related right we're not against each other. So like whether you believe in anarchy or democracy or communism or like whatever you believe in, come to the table, come to the table and recognize that all these versions of organizing our populations, like, yeah, none of them have worked perfectly. None of them have, have gotten us free of what we're still suffering with. Great. Okay. Let's sit down together. You who believes in this, you who believes in that, you who believes in the other thing, you who doesn't agree with me. Why don't we try sitting around a table and listening to each other? And maybe from that openness, that receptivity, a whole new insight can arise. I mean, that's the kind of vision that I have, like a whole new idea that we haven't seen before a whole new I don't even know if I want to say system of governance but it's like I would I would even encourage us to find new ways of speaking around collaboration like creative um, participation where we can contribute to serving everybody's needs you know, to, to break away from just this or that, black or white. It's like, come on, we've like evolved past that. I think we have like so much more capacity to download such much more rich and deep and powerful ways of interacting and relating with each other. And, and in order to access that, I think what is required of all of us is to be brave to step into the unknown. It's like, we're not going to use all those old things. So any attachment you have to them, like it's, it should be democracy. It should be Republican version democracy. It should be like whatever. Any attachment that any of us have from the past is actually dragging into and, and weighing on what could potentially be birthed. So that's what I want to evoke from people is like, just, just open your mind, just, you know, just for a minute, even like, we don't even have to take a, the next step, just pause, just open a gap, a space, some room for a discussion where we're not judging and pointing fingers. And for sure, we know, and they're wrong, and I'm good, and they're bad, and or vice versa, and, and start to really relate to each other in a whole new way, which I think, again, looks more like um, some of these older wisdom teachings that were stomped out by, again, who knows what, but it's time to um, remember. And bring dialogue back and healthy debate. Yeah, baby. Yeah. So, Magda, I know we're like rounding the bend here at about an hour probably. And I know people, I know I do only have a certain attention span to listen to things like this. It's been so freaking fun talking to you. And I love these questions that everybody um, put out on that Facebook post, we'll definitely post this podcast. And I think the invitation is always there. I mean, even if you want to come on the podcast and ask me questions, or if you want to be on my podcast and, and discuss one or some certain topic that you feel really passionate about, I think this podcast is really a platform to give people who maybe don't typically have a voice, a voice and talk about things that we don't typically talk about. 
you know, a place where we can start to talk about these things. So I really appreciate your idea, Magda, and what you brought to the table and just you taking the time to ask me these questions. Did you want to say anything else or ask anything else? Thank you so much for making the time today. That was fun. Yeah, and thanks to all listeners for taking the time to listen. I hope you take something inspiring. My um, intention to do these podcasts is always that maybe we take a first step in the direction of our health and healing and wellness. May all beings be happy.